All right, well, if you're here and you've got your copy of God's Word, I invite you to take it and turn to the book of Acts. We're going to start in the book of Acts chapter 2. Uh, we're going to start round about uh, verse 11 uh, after we kind of introduce what's going to go on this morning. Uh, we've been in a series uh, that's been all about the gospel. And so we, we walked through a series called the Gospel Prayer. We walked through the, the four points of the Gospel Prayer, which uh, are not Scripture, but they're grounded in Scripture. If you need any sort of review on them, we're going to hit them uh, a little bit later on in the sermon. But if you want to more in detail about them, they're all uh, on the website. You could catch up. Uh, but before we jump in with both feet, let's go to the Lord in prayer and we'll get started. Father, we thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, we thank you for the good news of the gospel. And Lord, I pray that we would be a people whose lives are absolutely transformed as a result of it. Lord, I pray that your uh, coming to earth, your death, burial, and resurrection, Lord, I pray that those are things that would never grow old to us, but there are things that we would continue to grow deeper and deeper in. And Lord, I pray that the deeper we get into those truths, Lord, I pray the more we would be more like your son. So Father, help us to be a church that is indeed gospel-centered. And Lord, I pray this morning that you would feed your people, and I pray that you would use me to do it. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. And so we are uh, in the book of Acts, chapter 2, verse 11, and we're going to talk about today uh, a gospel-centered church and what that is. It's one thing for each of us to have our lives wrapped around the gospel uh, and, and have us as individuals all living out the gospel. It's a completely different thing when all of us uh, as a community begin to live out the gospel together as a church. And so I want to look at uh, mainly three aspects uh, of a gospel-centered church and kind of what that looks like and how a gospel-centered church operates. None of these are earth-shattering, right? These are all pretty simple. But I think that when you see them, you'll realize the simplicity of what the church is supposed to be and how powerful it is when the church is living the way that it's supposed to. And so uh, the first point for this morning comes out of the book of Acts chapter 2, uh, and that is that a gospel-centered, in a gospel-centered church, preaching the message of the gospel is priority. And when I say preaching the message of the gospel, I'm not just talking about this hour that I get on Sunday mornings, okay? That's not the, the centrality of the preaching of our church, the preaching of the gospel should be going on in each of your lives while you're living your lives out in the community. You with me? The earliest preaching that we have by the apostles didn't take place in churches. It was out in town to groups of people. Whenever a crowd was drawing, the, the, the people of the church took it as an opportunity to share the gospel with as many people as possible. And so don't, whenever I say preaching, don't just think, well, hey, that's what we pay you to do. But preaching of the gospel being central is something that we're all to be doing, this proclaiming of the good news. And just for a record, when we're talking about preaching the gospel, the gospel means good news. The same word that is translated gospel that we as believers take to mean God becoming a man, living a perfect life, dying on the cross for our sins, and then raising from the dead so that we could have eternal life. That good news of the gospel, that same word translated good news, the gospel, when a Roman king would go out into a conquest and win a big war, he wouldn't get on Twitter and Facebook and let everybody know that he had won the war, right? They didn't have all this. And so what they would do is they would send out a gospel carrier. They'd send out a dude on a horse to go into the communities and spread the good news that the Romans had won the war, right? Those were the first gospel carriers. So gospel is good news 
And we're supposed to be proclaiming that good news to the world. And so that's a key aspect of a gospel-centered church. And I just want to go to Acts chapter 2, verse 11. And I want to take a brief look at what this first presentation of the gospel looked like. Because I think that you'll be amazed at how simple it is. For some reason, in the church, we've made the preaching or sharing of the gospel something that you have to have a degree to do. And it's painfully simple. Painfully simple. And so go to the book of Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2 is when is the day of Pentecost. So the Holy Spirit's come down and you have uh, the apostles and those gathered in the upper room. They're speaking in different languages. And I want you to go down to verse 2. Everybody around them thinks that they're drunk. And so Peter steps up to the plate and he's like, listen, gang. They're not drunk. We're not drunk. This is what's going on. And he begins to preach a sermon. But tucked away in verse number 11, I want you to see what all of these people from all of these different languages heard the people saying. And so, okay, so if fire comes down and there's tongues of fire above everybody's head, that's going to be a little bit strange. Were you with me? Like if fire fell above your head right now and it looked like a tongue of fire and you started speaking something different Let's just all be on the same page and go, boy, that's that's different. That's never happened before. And then hopefully what you would do is that when something's weird and different, you would take note of what's being said, right? It's not just enough to, to see what's going on, but what are these people saying? That's always interested me. And just a side note, anyone who comes from any sort of charismatic background, I try to, anytime I can have a a genuine conversation with them. I'm intrigued by the spiritual gift of tongues, right? I don't have it. I don't know anybody who does have it. But every time I, I'm around it, I ask people, what, what, what's the last few things you've heard when people have been speaking in tongues? And so what people say is, is at the top of my radar. And listen to what these people were saying in verse 11. You've got the Cretans and the Arabs. They're some of the people from different languages. And it says this. We hear them in our own tongues speaking of the mighty deeds of God. And so when this Holy Spirit came down, when there were tongues of fire, they were speaking the mighty deeds of God. They weren't just gibbering. They were talking about the great things that God was doing. And that led into... Everybody else says, hey, these guys are drunk. And Peter stands up in verse 14. I'm not going to read the whole passage. I'm going to kind of jump around. And But Peter, verse 14 of chapter 2, taking his stand with the eleven, raised his voice and declared to them, men of Judea and all you who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give heed to my words. For these men are not drunk as you suppose, for it's only the third hour of the day. But this is what was spoken of through the prophet Joel. In the last days, God said that I will pour forth my spirit on all mankind. And then at the end of 18, and they shall prophesy. And he gives more quotations from the Old Testament. And then he goes to verse 22. And I'm just skipping that for the sake of time. And he says, men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus, the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs, which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. Verse 23, this man, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. For David says of him, and he goes back and he quotes David in the Old Testament. And in verse 29, it says, brethren... I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. 
And so because he was a prophet, verse 30, and knew that God had sworn to him with an oath to seat one of his descendants on the throne, he looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of Christ, that he was neither abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh suffer decay. Verse 32, this Jesus God raised up again, to which we are all witnesses, Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured forth his spirit. He has poured forth this which you see and hear. For it was not David who ascended into heaven, but he himself. And he quotes again. And then he says, verse 36, Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Let me simplify that a little bit for you. He's going through a little bit of the Jewish history, and he's telling them some very simple things that they would have readily understood. Jesus was a man sent to us by God who was God. You didn't believe him, and you killed him. He really was who he said he was, and the proof is that he died and rose again. And by the way, that was all part of God's plan. And so those are the simple truths that I want you to get out of Peter's sermon. When you're proclaiming the gospel, it's good to have a defense for things that people say. And you're called to, at some point, give a defense for the things of the faith. But listen, proclaiming the gospel, being a gospel-centered church, proclaiming the gospel, is as simple as proclaiming to the lost world that God became a man, died for your sins, rose from the dead to have eternal life, and he loves you and wants to forgive you of your sins. It's as simple as that. And when you proclaim that to a lost world, you are not responsible for any results. The results are in God's hands. Listen to what happened. So Peter gives that sermon, and you've heard this before. Verse 37 says this, Now when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? And so it's not that Peter went on for 45 minutes in a sermon. He he gave them a simple message. God became a man, lived perfect life, died for your sins, and then rose from the dead so that he could save you. And the people are pierced to the heart and they say, what do we do? And Peter doesn't run through a long list. It's obvious that they believe what Peter is saying because they want to take action. If you don't want to take action as a result of the things that you believe, you don't really believe them. Okay? You with me? And so it proves that these people believe because they're pierced to the heart. And they say, Peter, what do we do? He says, repent and be baptized. It's that simple. When we go preaching the message of the gospel, the Holy Spirit goes along with us and he convicts people's hearts. And if the Holy Spirit isn't convicting someone's heart, they're not going to be saved. Because... Because salvation isn't a man thing, it's a God thing. God is the one doing the work of salvation. And so it's not your job to work harder and work harder and come up with more uh, more uh, winsome things to say. It's a, we're to be preaching the gospel to people. And when it pierces people's heart and they ask, what do we do? We move in and tell them to repent and be baptized. It really is that simple. I know a couple people, and I've shared with you before... I know this guy who was all messed up, alcohol and drugs. You never met this guy. All messed up. And the only thing he remembers about getting saved 
He doesn't remember all of the things the person was saying. He just remembers being overwhelmed with his sinfulness while the person was talking. And the person wasn't condemning him. He was just sharing about what Christ had done. He was overwhelmed with his sinfulness. And he knew that if he asked God for forgiveness, that God would forgive him and take his sin and make him as white as snow. That's what he knew. It was the Holy Spirit working in his life that convicted him of that. And so these people that Peter is preaching to, they realize the truth of what Peter's saying, and they want to take action, and Peter simply says, repent and be baptized. And brothers and sisters, that is as simple as it gets. And listen, if we want to be a gospel-centered church, that will be at the center of everything that we do. This summer, we're probably going to have a golf clinic for kids, right? We're hoping to do it at the country club. We don't have all the details ironed out yet. And you go, well, what does a golf clinic have to do with church and being a gospel-centered church? We want to serve the community in a way that's easy for us, right? We've got a lot of good golfers, a lot of retired golfers that have some time on their hands. We want to invest in some of the kids. We want to get them liking a sport that will keep them out of trouble much of the time. And then we also want to gather a group of kids. Why? So that we can love them, teach them golf, and then share the gospel with them. Not pressure them into anything. Just get them together, share the gospel with them. Nothing awkward but a simple, listen, gang. God loves you. He came to earth to die on the cross for your sins. And then he rose from the dead so that you can have eternal life with him. We want to share that with them. And so we're going to do things to serve the community, to draw a crowd, and then do that. And so this is what a gospel-centered church looks like. We have people that step up to the plate that are willing to serve in different areas so that we can take that gospel to a lost and dying world And if we're going to be a gospel-centered church, that gospel has to be at the center of every ministry and every committee that we have. Amen? Next one. And this is something that I'm growing in, so I'm going to totally condemn myself here, tell you I think I've done some things wrong in the past, and then tell you that on our way forward, it's fixed. You ready? Now you're dying to know what it is, right? Right? You're like, well, for once, he's going to hit himself and, and not all of us. Right? This is me. Uh, I think a, a gospel-centered church, in a gospel-centered church, the emphasis is more on what Christ has done than what we are to do. And I look back at some of the messages that I may have preached in the past, and I think sometimes I've spent a lot more time saying what we should do as opposed to harping on what Christ has done. You with me? And you go, well, I don't understand what the difference is. I don't take back anything that I said, okay? Like everything I said, I think, is good. We need to be doing those things. But every time you see change in Christians, it's always out of a response to what Christ has done for them. And so if you look to the, um, I don't want to get ahead of myself, but if you look to the book of John, people come to John and they say, well, what are we supposed to do in this situation? And John, this is first, second, and third John, John's going to say, you need to love each other. Okay, John, why do we love each other? Isn't there more we should be doing? He says, no, you should love each other because God loved you. You with me? And so a gospel-centered church is going to harp continually on what Christ has already done for us. And then out of that comes everything that we're supposed to do. And so there is a time and a place for instruction on how we should be behaving. But all of the ways that we should be behaving are all in response to what Christ has done for us. And so we can never get away from the gospel. You with me? Because the gospel 
is the power of God unto salvation. And so whenever you need to fix X, Y, and Z in your life, right? Whenever you need to beat a sin, whenever you need to beat an addiction, the only power in your life that you have to do it is the gospel, right? That Jesus died for your sins and he took all of your sin and he gave you the Holy Spirit. And so the gospel is the power to get through all of those things. And so a gospel-centered church harps more on the gospel and then out of the gospel, then lives are transformed, right? Like we're not just interested in behavioral modification. We want people to grow and learn the gospel and out of it, it fixes things. And let me tell you how this kind of works itself out in churches sometimes. Sometimes, in, and I'm not, I don't want to pick on the charismatic movement, I'm going to use them first. In some charismatic churches, there's more emphasis, and I'm going to go through a long list, and I'm not picking on anybody. I'm going to hit Baptist Reformed churches too. In some charismatic churches, more of the emphasis in church is on the gifts of the Holy Spirit than what Christ had done. In some of your younger churches, there's more emphasis on how you dress going to church than the gospel. In some of your more fundamental churches, there's more emphasis on obeying the rules and there's more emphasis on you dressing the right way as opposed to the gospel. And you see where this is going? All of us as churches can fall into traps where we put more emphasis on X, Y, or Z than we do the good news of the gospel. It's easy for us to get distracted. And what we need to always remember is we've got to always go back to the gospel. Sometimes in your prosperity gospel churches, there's more emphasis on what God wants to give you and what God can do for you as opposed to what God has already done for you. And some of your more reformed churches, there's more emphasis on the theology about God as opposed to focusing on what God has already done and then moving on out of that. So hopefully you see where I'm going here is that we need to, as a gospel-centered church, never get away from the truth of the gospel. You never grow out of it. It's not just a kid's story that we outgrow. Um, let's look at this. Let's turn over to the book of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 8. And I want you to see something cool about the church. We've talked about the gospel. We've talked some about the, the gospel prayer. We're going to actually look at the gospel prayer in a minute. But I want you to see that if people as a group live out the gospel, that it is a supernatural thing taking place. And this is why out of the book of Ephesians chapter 3, verse 8. And Paul says this, Ephesians chapter 3, verse 8. To me, the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ. So Paul's a Gentile, or excuse me, Paul's a Jew, and he's preaching to the Gentiles about the unfathomable riches of grace. So the gospel's going out to the Gentiles. And then he says in verse 9, And to bring to light what is the administration of the mystery which for ages has been hidden in God who created all things, so that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. And so what he's saying here is that there's something huge going on. Like at this given time, through Paul, he, God wants to bring to light what is the administration of the mystery which has been hidden in God who created all things so that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities through the church. You following this? And so what Paul is saying is that through the church, 
through people living out the gospel, God wants to show the world the mysteries of God that have been hidden throughout the ages. You go, well, I don't get it. What's, what, what is this? Listen, the church should be the biggest proof, the biggest proof that there's a God and he redeems people from anything. The church is the only place in the whole world where uh, even within our church, we have people who are Filipina. We have people who uh, are from all sorts of different countries. We have white people. We have black people. We have young people. We have old people. We have rich people. We have poor people. We have all the different groups of people you can imagine within our church. And we love each other and care about each other. And we don't do it because the government laws make us do it. We do it because of the gospel. Because God loved us and we then love others. You with me? And this should be mind-blowing to the rest of the world. That we conduct ourselves in this way. And then this isn't just a closed-off club. But we have open enrollment for membership. For anyone who is redeemed of God can come here and we bring them into the family. That doesn't happen in the rest of the world. You with me? And that should be proof of how amazing God is. And the way that we act as the church who's centered on the gospel should be a way of preaching the gospel to everybody else. Listen, I want to tell you something that gets me real stirred up in a good way. There's a guy in our community. This guy has a a pretty negative reputation. And I've been trying to pour myself into this individual. And the other day I went to see him and he says, hey, funny, you should show up. I was just telling somebody how unreligious I am. And I was like, he had no idea that I was showing up to share the gospel with him. And, he, and so I'm about to share the gospel with him, but, but something happened and we had to part ways. And he said, you know what I was telling that individual? I said, no, what were you telling him? I was telling him that I, I don't like religion or anything that has to do with religion. But I told him, I said, there's one person who might change my mind. And he said, preacher, you're that guy. Man, I want this guy to get saved. <laughs> I want this guy to walk down front. And I want you to, you guys to go, wow, God saved that guy. Out of all the people, I thought that guy was the last one that would be saved. And I want that guy to walk down. And I want him to join our church. And I want him to have fellowship with us like his past never even happened. Because I want the rest of the world to see God has the ability to forgive people from their past. And we as the church will embody forgiving that individual from any wrong that they've ever done and not holding it against them. And that's how in the book of Ephesians, Paul says that we as the church are to be showing the manifold wisdom and power of God to the rest of the world. Because what I just described to you doesn't happen. We live in a world who says, we don't need to forgive people. We don't, we just need to give up. We need to medicate people. We need to just get, we need to all just make things as simple as possible. The world doesn't have a category for what I just explained to you. And brothers, that's the power of God in people's lives. And I want our church to be always focused on the gospel and taking that gospel to the ends of the earth and our community. And I want us to see lost people get saved. And I want to see us as a church be able to forgive them and move on and help them grow in Christ. Because that's why Christ came. And if that doesn't get you stirred up, you might need to get saved also. Because you might just be lost if that doesn't get you excited. All right. So... Let's, uh, Ron, if you don't mind, if you'll go ahead and fly that gospel prayer, I want to walk briefly through kind of a couple of the aspects of the gospel prayer, and then I want to close up 
uh, everything in the book of Acts chapter 8. So you can go ahead and turn to Acts chapter 8. And so this is what we had been walking through. We've been walking through the gospel prayer. And by the way, this this uh, exact flyer is on Facebook. If you want to print it off, if this uh, kind of stirs up some emotions in you, uh, I like this. This means a lot to me. I've printed it out and I kind of read through it every once in a while. But today we're talking about a gospel-centered church. And for the whole gospel prayer, we had been talking about you. This changing your life, changing your life, changing your life. And today when we talk about a gospel-centered church... What if all of our lives were changed by this gospel prayer? And so what if all of us realize that in Christ there's nothing we can do to make him love me more and there's nothing I've ever done that makes him love me less? Like what if we operated out of that? Not working for our salvation and not being held back by regrets and guilt and all of that stuff. What if we were all just comfortable in Christ that he had saved us, he loves us so much that it's impossible for him to love us anymore... And he doesn't hold any of that garbage that we did in the past against us. Like, what if that was all of us? If that was all of us, there'd be a lot less anxiety and depression amongst us. And we would be a really, really great group to be around because we would be comfortable with ourselves. Knowing that Christ had us. What if... All we needed as a group of people, not just as individuals, but what if all of us as a group knew that your presence, God's presence and approval are all we needed for joy? And so what if we as a group of people right here were so satisfied with our walks with Christ that we didn't need anything else, that God was enough to satisfy us and give us eternal joy? What would that look like? What if we as a group of people recognized the third one? So as you have been to me, I'll be to others. What if that sort of sacrifice was amongst us? That we looked at everything that Christ had done for us. And then we said, we're going to be that to our community. I want to read something real short. This is an excerpt from a book. I'm not going to hold the book so you don't think it's a long quote. But listen to this about generosity and sacrifice. This took place in the first few centuries. It says, The radical generosity of the church amazed the community, and it drew attention to the radical generosity of Christ. Emperor Julian, one of Christianity's fiercest persecutors, complained in a letter to a friend that he could just not keep the church from growing no matter what he did. In disgust, he said... The godless Galileans, they take care not only of their own poor, but ours as well. It was Christians giving themselves away to those unable to pay them back that convinced a skeptical Roman world the truth of Jesus' claims. And so here's an, an ancient Roman emperor who realizes that he can't keep the church from growing because these guys won't stop being generous. And I think about our community and I think about our town. A lot of people don't like small towns, but small towns are pretty pretty close-knit. Uh, even though some of my neighbors aren't churchgoers, if something happened to me or my wife, my neighbors would show up and they would show me love, right? You guys all live in Windsor. You know how this works. What this means is that we as Christ followers need to be even more radical in our generosity than the people around us. It means that we need to we need to make the love that small towns have for each other look like hate compared to the love that we have for one another and for them as well. It means that we need to be exploding with generosity towards each other and the lost world in order to show them how big of a deal Christ is in our lives. 
And sometimes this isn't going to make any sense, any logical sense, that is. Why would you give that much money away? Why would you spend so much time reaching that group of people? Why would you do these things that look like, look like craziness to the rest of the world? And the answer is, because as Christ has been to me, so I'm going to be to others. And that's what a gospel-centered church looks like. When everybody together, all 120 of us, give or take, on any Sunday... We all live our lives like Christ lived, like Christ loved us. So we love other people. And that means sacrificing. That means all sorts of other things that the Holy Spirit might make us to do. And then the last one says, as I pray, I'll measure your compassion by the cross and your power by the resurrection. So not only are we going to live sacrificially, not only are we going to be comfortable in who Christ is and take joy in him, but we're going to pray for huge things to happen. And we're going to have compassion on people because Christ had compassion on us when he went to the cross, but then he rose from the dead with great power. And so we're going to pray God's power moving in all sorts of different ways. That's what a gospel-centered church looks like. A gospel-centered church realizes that salvation is a God thing. And if that individual I described to you is going to get saved, it's not going to be because I come, is because I go over there frequently. It's going to be because God works in his heart and takes his heart of stone and gives him a heart of flesh. And we need to be people who gather together and pray big things like that. And we need to be, this is going to hit pretty close, we need to be people that are praying more for the salvation of others than the health of others. You with me? If I, and I'm just going to pick this out of the blue, if I get an ingrown toenail and die from it, and somebody, I only pick that because that's not something we pray for. You with me? Loosen up. It's Labor Day. Okay? It's raining outside. That's God showing all those people who went to the beach. Don't go to the beach on Labor Day. Go to church on Labor Day. Anyways, listen. If I come down with something and I die, and my neighbor gets saved because of it, it was worth me dying for. If you get sick, and that shows the world you living out your faith and your trust in God, and it takes your life, and people get saved as a result... It was worth it. And that is a tough thing to wrap your mind around. But listen, gang, eternity is a long time. And we've got to be, as a gospel-centered church, a group of people who care about the souls of men for an eternity. And if it takes temporary uncomfortableness, then we've got to be willing to roll with it so that other people can see Christ in our lives. And that's a gospel-centered church. That everything we do, everything we think, everything we say revolves around people getting saved. Amen? So look at this last section in Acts chapter 8. This is where we wind down. So by the time you get to Acts chapter 8, they've uh, Peter's already been preaching at Pentecost. People have gotten saved. Stephen uh, preaches, and they've just finished stoning Stephen. And now what this, what this does is this brings persecution into the area and the church spreads about. And there's a guy named Philip. Okay? And so in Acts chapter 8, verse 5, it says, Philip went down to the city of Samaria and began proclaiming Christ there. So this is a normal thing, right? Christians proclaim Christ wherever they go. Right? If you work in the hospital, you should be proclaiming Christ there. If you work in the school, you should be proclaiming Christ there. 
So Philip is a displaced Christian. He had to leave his town because of persecution. So naturally, wherever he goes, he's going to be proclaiming Christ. And it says in verse 6, The crowds were with one accord, were with one accord, were giving attention to what was said by Philip, as they heard and saw the signs which he was performing. For in the case, many who had unclean spirits, they were coming out of them shouting with a loud voice, and many who had been paralyzed were lame and healed. And so listen, this is early on. The, the gospel and the faith is spreading, and so it's being accompanied by signs and wonders. And so Peter is preaching, but he's, excuse me, Philip is preaching, but he also signs and wonders are being accompanied. Listen, you and I, as a church, we have signs and wonders amongst us now. The church is a place where God's wisdom and power is on display for people to see. And His wisdom and power takes the form of, you have offended me and I have freely forgiven you and I'm restoring you to where you were. People are getting saved and they're coming into our group and we're with open arms accepting them into our group. Right? That's the power of God in people's lives. Like, that's not normal. And so, don't just think, oh yeah, well he's casting out demons and all that stuff. That's why people are, our people are happy. That's why people are all in one accord. No. The church is doing all sorts of great things also that give testimony to how great God is. And listen to this. And then it says in verse 8, so there was much rejoicing in that city because Philip has taken the gospel to it and great things are happening. Let me ask you this. Is there great joy in Windsor, North Carolina because of Kashai Baptist Church? If Kashai Baptist Church disappeared, would there be a void or a vacuum of joy? Or would the town just inherit a piece of property that used to be tax-free and now they can get tax money on it? Would anybody notice if we were gone? Because when the church was starting and the gospel was going out, the town had great joy because of the things that were going on. And so what I want to tell you, brothers and sisters, is that we need to be gospel-centered. We need to be busy about doing things so that we can take the gospel to the community. And you go, well, how do I do that? I say, funny you should ask. Uh, The nominating committee has got a piece of paper, right? And there's all sorts of committees that you can sign up for. And you go, no, no, no. I want to take the gospel. I want to, I want to bring great joy to the community as a part of Kashai Baptist Church. You want to start out small by bringing great joy to Jonathan Huddleston, the chairman of the committee, and the other committee members? How about you show them that you want to be a part of what we're doing at our church? You know what would bring great joy to eight people or seven people, however many are on the committee? Make them not have to make any phone calls asking people to serve our church. That would be a start to bringing great joy to a couple of people in our community. And then when you do get on whatever committee that you sign up for, be joyful and zealous to serve whenever they call you. So that our church has a... a, The only reason we have these is so that we can operate smoothly. So that when something needs to get done, we know who to call to go do it. And so here's one of the things that that we're going to do as a church. We're going to have a big tailgate party outside of the Vidant Hospital, right? The Vidant Hospital has no idea we're going to do that yet, but I know all the right people at the hospital, right? So we're going to be in the grass, and we're going to have a big tailgate party. We're going to cook hamburgers, hot dogs, and we're going to feed all of the employees lunch. Why are we going to do that? Because we want to show somebody in the community that we love them, and it's going to be something as simple as a hamburger and some french fries or some chips. 
And you go, well, I bet that would make the workers smile. I bet it would too. That's why we're doing it. We want to be a source of joy in the community. And so you say, well, hey, that's something that I would like to take part in. We'll sign up for the Evangelism and Missions Committee. And when your pastor has some harebrained idea that the world thinks is crazy, he's going to call you to help him pull it off. And you can be a source of joy to the community. You with me? You want to bring smiles to people's faces? Maybe you like doing things behind the scene. You could jump on board with the hospitality committee. And you could make the church look nice because that brings you joy. And that makes other people feel comfortable when they do come in and visit. You with me? And we want to grow out of all of these. And so, you want to get on board and be a gospel-centered church? This is how you start doing it. You be involved in your church. And you sign up for things so that we know that we can count on you. So many times, something big happens at our church. We do something that's great for the community. And people that are in our church that are on the fringe, they go, Wow, I wish you would have called me to be a part of it. And I think, wow, a year ago, I wish you'd have signed up to be on the committee and we would have known to call you. That's not a smart aleck thing to say. That's just how things work. When we need to do things, we call the people who have signed up to do them. And so I want to urge you as a church, put your name on the list, trust us, and let us get you on board helping with some of the things that we do. Don't let the year go by and be like, wow, I wish I would have been a part of that. This is kind of when I thought that K would be like, yes, amen. Because K is the, uh, K is the heartbeat of our, uh, no offense to anybody else, K and Jill really keep the wheels going on our nominating committee. So I was expecting both of them to be totally on board. But I got you. I give you some slack. There we go. That's right. Well, I plan on it until the nominating committee stuff is finished up. And so uh, what we're going to do is we're going to uh, we're going to show you a list of needs for the nominating committee in the weeks to come. And we're going to give you a place where you can you can sign up to help. OK, and then the only phone calls that we should have to make are when we need you. We don't have to call you to ask you to help. We just want to call you when we need your help you with me. And so I want you just to kind of go through the book of Acts this week and look at some of the different things that the church is doing. The people of the early church, they're selling things so that they can help the poor. They're sharing things so that they can help one another out. And then by the time you get midway to the end of the book of Acts, Paul is standing before, uh, I just forgot the guy's name. He's standing before the head honcho of Rome. And the guy says, are these the men who have turned the world upside down? And you realize that it started with 12 people. And within the span of about 20 or 30 years, the whole world is rocked because of the simple things that I just explained to you today. People taking the message of Christ, that he became a man, God became a man, he died for your sins, and he rose from the dead so that you could have eternal life. That message transformed the world, and that message can bring great joy to all of the people of Windsor, okay? And the rest of the world. So if you're here and you've never put your faith in Christ, you go, wow, I want to be on board with all of that stuff, but I don't know how to get started. The way to be gospel-centered is to have the gospel in your life, to have confessed the name of Christ, trusted him to forgive you of your sins, and be baptized and repent. You with me? And so if you want to do any of those things during the time of invitation, you come up and we'll get you on the right track. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. 
Lord, I pray that we as a group, that we as a church, that we would indeed be gospel-centered with everything that we do. Father, I pray that we would be a group of people who live out the truths of the gospel every single day. And Lord, I pray that through our church that you would change the world. Father, I pray that you would be about breaking the hearts of lost people all around us. And Father, I pray that you would put us all in the right places to tell them about Christ. Father, I pray that you would help us to be the church that you've called us to be. A church that forgives. A church that takes your name to the ends of the earth. And Father, I pray that the world would indeed have great joy because of our presence amongst them. And so, Father, we can only do that through your guidance. And Lord, lastly, I pray that if there's anyone here who's never put their faith in you, who's never believed in the gospel, Lord, I pray today would be the day they do it. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. If you would stand with us for a hymn of invitation. Well, guys, it was great to see you again this week. Thank you, ladies, for the great singing you gave us this morning. We appreciate you, as always. Guys, I love you as a group, and I treasure you. And I look forward to the great things uh, that we're going to do together for the gospel. Uh, I really look forward to the things that God is going to do with us and through us. And uh, I really do want to encourage you in the weeks to come that uh, if you're here and uh, mainly you just come to church and that's kind of the end of it. I want to encourage you this year. Let this be the year that you jump in and you get involved with some of the things that we're doing and help us uh, be the hands and feet of Christ in the community. And so I'm going to ask Dr. Tarkington if you would close us in prayer and we'll be dismissed.